Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Quinn, how are you doing today? Pretty good, you? Good. Doing good. We wanted to um, get together and talk about the moral circle today. Yeah. I think this term comes from Peter, Peter Singer. Yeah. If I am not mistaken. From a book he released in 1981. Yeah. I didn't know that. I'm not surprised, though. Um, I've certainly heard him use it. Right, right. I guess the he's probably the biggest utilitarian. Yeah. Out there. Um perhaps we should define our term before yeah. we get started. So the moral circle. What's the yeah. moral circle? Um I think it's this idea about uh about who you're able to empathize with and or or maybe about the trade off between your how difficult it is to empathize. Um and I'm not sure that I'm doing this correctly, but uh, that um, in general, it's easier to empathize with people who are more like you than with people who are different. Uh, members of your tribe are members of moral concern. Members of our tribes may not be. Members of our species may be even harder than members of our tribes. Right. So something like uh, the moral circle is who we deem worthy or what we deem worthy of moral consideration yeah and it seems sort of variable in terms of i think there's a risk of conflating our endorsed considered values at reflective equilibrium and our instincts and i'm not sure that that conflation is necessarily destructive in the moment i just watch for conflations generally definitely definitely um so it actually spurred me to, for us to talk about this now, this, this conversation. Uh, I was reflecting on a paper that you sent to me on, um, and this is a couple weeks later, it's just been bouncing around my brain, on um, differences in the moral circle and moral preferences um, from people across the political spectrum. Yes. But... Yeah. Yeah. Um, the interesting finding in, in the paper, I guess I'll just yeah. throw it out there. Uh, conservatives, as we, the more conservative you got, the more family focused you were. Yeah. So near kin relationships matter the most. Yes. Um, and the farther liberal you got, the, um, I guess the preferences went out further. Yeah. If I'm remembering correctly. So it was like a, um, non-human animals yes were really important yes uh, that was and it's been a little bit since I read but I think it was based on self-report that's right so which we, we do, should remember yeah it's just a good habit um, I'm wishing I had the paper yeah I could check I'm 
remembering being very, I remember the result being kind of extreme. It was very extreme. Yeah, which made it interesting, but it also could be a red flag. Yeah. Especially with uh, here in the news recently, Dan Ariely. I don't think I've heard. Oh, you didn't hear this? No. Uh, apparently, he uh, kind of, he claims that it was a, a, an honest mistake and he didn't do it, but um, faked a bunch of data about huh. um, trust and irrationality. And I had not heard. Kahneman uh, thinking fast and slow. Those guys yeah. apparently had something similar happen recently. Yeah. Long uh, story short, take all psychology uh, research or perhaps research in general yeah. at, uh, with a grain of salt. I think it's good to think explicitly about what reasons you have to trust it to make that um, salient. I spent a lot of time thinking about this as a teenager. Um, I was reading Bertrand Russell again. I know people are probably sick of hearing me talk about <laughs> no. it. But he wrote this thousand-page book that was the history of philosophy going back to Greece. Yeah. And that really, that was the first thing that made me really grapple with how big history was get on gut level rather than just as a number right and i noticed that almost all of these societies were really really wrong about how science worked and right. almost none of them were correspondingly uncertain so i had this i'm careful about saying this because i think a lot of people stop there they go right. full epistemic relativist we have no reason to think that our ideas about how the world works are any more valid than any of our societies. And I don't believe that's true. But I do think it's good to explicitly think about why we think they're more valid. Because I think what the book convinced me of is that there's a very natural human tendency to just basically believe what the people around you tell you about that stuff. Definitely. Just, you know, without... And historically that usually does mean you accept some stuff that's just not true right definitely and I, I had this thought recently uh, we were talking about my dog and God oh yeah I remember dog or god um, and it's similar similar thought we had, you know my dog he had this uh, he had mange yeah he had to get a bath he really did not want a bath it's very painful for him he really hated it you know um, and I, I thought about, you know, there's no way for him to understand that this is good for him. And so, I, yeah. you know, we were talking about this in the context of the problem of suffering and things like that. But uh, it's also like there are things above our cognitive pay grade. Perhaps. Yes. Important to keep in mind. Really important to keep in mind. Huh. My dog always tries to climb me. Right. Mine too. <laughs> she really likes being dried off, though. Nice. That's good. That's good. Um, I realize that probably doesn't address the important point, but no, no, I think it's great. Um, but it does remind me. So, like, uh, the moral circle, like who we care about, has changed. It does seem like it has changed over time. Yes. Like in the context of our dogs. Yeah. Um, I think dogs have definitely, you know, upped a level within the last even twenty years. I would say. Yep. Since we've been alive, I think that that's been a real shift. I think so, too. Like dogs is actually family members instead of... Um, yeah. Like they're, they're near kin instead of just like... Yeah. My mom talks about that. Oh, really? Yeah. Which I find 
comforting because it means I don't have to worry as much that I'm, you know, inadvertently mistreating mine. Right. I would know if I were doing that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so in the context of utilitarianism, yeah. this matters a lot because we, 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 you know, the moral circle matters a lot because who we count in whatever calculus for when we decide whether to do something or not do something, the cost benefit analysis, like this all, you know, whether we, do we count animals? Do we count people in foreign countries? Do we count yeah. people in other cities? Like how do we decide yeah. where to draw these lines? an important question uh, I definitely disproportionately weigh the people I care about and I expect other people to maybe disapprove of that decision but I'm not exactly going to apologize for it Right. I decided when I was pretty young that it was important to be honest with myself about my own motivations and that sometimes means I can read arguments that I shouldn't feel that way, but uh, they don't work. Right. That's smart. I, I, have, I have much the same uh, moral intuition that, you know, near kin matter yeah. a lot. They matter more to me than other people. Yeah. Um, broadly, you know, people in my country yeah. matter more to me than people in the world. Yeah. Uh, that feels very taboo to say, actually. Just say oh, that. I, I'm really... I'm very thankful that you say it. <laughs> I think... Uh, I don't have it about the country, but I do have it about my subculture. And maybe... This also feels taboo to say, but that feels, you know, fair. Uh, maybe people who are... Not so much people who are autistic, so much as the larger set of people who will get called autistic by people who use that as a derogatory term. Gotcha. Um, which includes the people who are actually autistic, but right. people with that high systematizing tendency. I think that's a really good way to describe it. Oh. I think I felt pretty alienated from the default culture I was in growing up, which probably sort of conditioned me to detach from having it toward my country as a whole. And I'm not sure that that was psychologically healthy. I mean, I'm certainly not bragging about it. That's very interesting. And I think uh, formative things like that like matter a lot. Yeah. Like really matter a lot um, for one's own beliefs, right? Like. Yeah. You know, if you had a lot of terrible experiences with your fellow countrymen from, you know, it wouldn't lend itself to, yeah, this is quite interesting. I, I think this has broken down too. Like, I think, uh, I think what I said that, you know, I value fellow countrymen more than um, citizens of the world. Oh. Like, I think that used to be a much more common belief. Yes. Like the, that we're kind of in this all together and like, yeah, but of course like that did include black people. So, you know, we should, yeah. you know, you got to take these things with a grain of salt. Um, I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's definitely changed. Um, I think in, uh, I can tolerate anything except the out group, 
who's right. Scott Alexander, he says, he talks about the blue tribe and the red tribe. And he thinks the red tribe identify themselves more with America, which means the blue tribe have a conspicuous aversion to identifying themselves with America. So that was my thought when I read uh, that study that set this off. Oh, right. So that, um, oh, that's super interesting. Uh, yes. Uh, I think um, we've talked about this before, but... In group signaling is really important. Yes, oh, tremendously. And uh, even more than your, even past your own preferences, like that matters a lot. Yeah. And and that can create some like really weird people doing really weird things. Yep. You know, like we don't like the vaccine just because. Yeah. It signals like we won't take the vaccine because the signals were affiliated with some group. Yeah, that and it interacts with you know simulacra levels or with right. people seeing things. See, I'm really curious about whether the, um, see, I don't know if I'm remembering it accurately, but I'm remembering there being a group in that survey for whom there's an actual alienist preference. They care more like about people. Yes. And I'm wondering if that is self-report. I mean, if it's, if it really accurately describes their gut level reactions. Right. Or if they have the... The idea that that's that's virtuous to endorse that preference, right? Um, and I really don't know. Uh, I guess if I had to guess, I would say a little of both, but um, it's a very weak prior. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. I want to I want to talk a little bit further, um, because I think this can get us somewhere interesting. Yeah. Um, so. Your moral preferences, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. We sure. got this. It's like, um, so first, probably near kin relationships. Yeah. Friends. Yes. Subculture. Pets. 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 That's right. It's really important. Uh, subculture. Yeah. What's next? Humanity, I guess. Humanity. Feels like they're should be something else in that space. I guess people who I would associate with the subculture, even if they haven't heard of the subculture. Right. Uh, it honestly feels like, I saw this graph someplace once of how much you care uh, based on proximity. Oh. It feels like most of my in-group loyalty got concentrated really close. So. And, and you're talking about like, uh, I think this is in the selfish gene where Dawkins is like, you know, you'll care for a cousin, like X amount percentage, and then yes. your second cousin, and then like, you know, a little bit less and yeah. so on and so forth. I care a lot about my family and friends. I don't think I actually care about foreigners more than most people, but I don't seem to have that intermediate step where I care more about countrymen than foreigners. Gotcha. Which is interesting. That is interesting. That's really interesting. So after humanity, what about animals? What, what's your... Pets are a special case. Yes, yeah. I was thinking... Um, <laughs> 
mammals and animals adapted to social relationships seem pretty different than that seems like I can, you know, I mean, dogs are social animals. Right. Uh, they feel different than reptiles, and reptiles feel very different than insects. I don't like insects. Yeah. Um, I really don't like insects. Yeah. And arachnids and other things in that. Right. You know, um, it's very interesting. We've talked about this. I've got a, you know, I, people don't talk about this when they talk about um you know uh reducing suffering and and worrying about like um uh, you know what animals you eat and things like that um and i'm gonna get i will probably get canceled okay. this in the next hundred years <laughs> you know because yeah. it, things things are going to change soon i believe uh, with a you know cultured meat which i'm very happy about yeah um but I've got more of a preference to eat chickens instead of beef. And I've, I do believe it's some kind of kin relationship. Like I'm closer related to yeah. cows and mammals seem to have more worth yeah. to me than chickens do. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I think I have a little bit of the same feeling. Yeah. I almost went to work for a um, one of the big EA organizations. Uh, uh couple years ago and in the interview they actually asked me um you know so like you know how do you think about animal lives in terms of human lives and things of this nature and it was kind of i felt weird saying it because it it felt like out of uh, out of the blue but i was like you know it was in the context of pigs and i was like "I, i think there's no number of pigs i would be willing to trade for a human life. Yeah. Like, I just don't think, I don't, you can, I don't think you can get me there. Yeah. Which, like, I don't know. I, I kind of feel bad about that, but well, that's I'm, a moral intuition I have. I'm really, really glad that we're saying this stuff out loud. <laughs> I value that a lot. And I think it it's important to have a place to do that. Yeah. You know, there's a, I think that's key. And I don't know, I have, a really hard time getting my ethical intuitions to attach to scope. I, right. I do have the idea that um, I have an ethical intuition that scope matters, but that's it's different than I have an ethical intuition to consider this. Right. And being good at considering it. Yeah. Um. I don't. Uh, I think the scope thing. I think that's a great. I don't want to come back. They had a thought there. Uh, the scope thing, I think it's important to think about. Um, for example, you know, I, I say that. I, I, say, I just say that. One of the revealed things I have is, so I was running down the trail this morning, um, and there's a millipede walking across yeah. the trail, and millipede's going to get smashed if he doesn't get moved. And so I picked him up, and I put him in, in yeah. the woods. You know what I mean? really like that impulse. <laughs> and, like, I don't know. like, But then again, like, how many insects would I, you know, save and for you know what's the trade for human life and i just don't think there is that ever works for me yeah while we're see i really want to reciprocate by saying things that will could let people cancel me (laughs) Uh, 
I think there are specific human lives that would definitely sacrifice to save even a small amount of pigs. Interesting. Are these like uh, really bad people, you'd say? Yeah, I think so. Is that kind of thing? Not necessarily destructive, more like, well, it probably fits the moral circle thing. People who are doing things for reasons that I can't get my empathy to attach to. So, um, I think mostly people working, not just people working, but people who have totally mentally acclimated to a very high simulacra level. So, I'm thinking of high-level politicians, but if you look historically, there are definitely some high-level politicians who aren't members of the reference class. Right. And I'm not necessarily endorsing that impulse but i do think that would be my revealed preference like just interesting yeah i have a sense that treating all human lives as having some baseline value is a really important piece of social machinery yeah but i also part of my whole deal is trying to figure out what the truth is and not lying to myself about yeah that emphatically includes my own intuitions definitely it's no it's super important to level set because that's how you make progress with anything to begin with like and then like also understanding where you are i think is just valuable in itself yeah yeah it's weird man i feel like we've got oh it's so bizarre i haven't thought this out at all so i'm just gonna float it out there and see if it sticks um, I've got this weird sense that we're like humanity is kind of, we should think about it as the, I've got this moral intuition, I should say of humanity as, you know, humans are deeply flawed. They have capability to do great things and good things. Um, but they can also do really bad things. Yes. Um, and for bad reasons, yes. <laughs> and, you know, like, uh, there's, there's this weird, like almost enlightenment idea I ca- encounter in a lot of people now that, you know, like there are no bad people yeah, and they're just like, uh, and they're just bad, just incentivized badly. I, I do think there are actually, there are some bad people. Yeah. And, I agree. And we probably all have that capacity to do some bad things ourselves. Yeah. Um, which we should be aware of. But I, I have a feeling, you know, we're all like deeply complicated. We're all in this spinning rock in space, you know, flying yeah. through the galaxy. And it's kind of like it's our job to try and take care of everybody as well as we can yeah. and, and keep things going. I, I don't know. I think it's useful to, it's potentially useful. Um, I'm going to do it anyway. Nice. To separate the epistemic question from sort of the, I guess the metaphysical question. It's one thing to say people are so complicated that you shouldn't write anyone off absolutely because you could be wrong. That's a question about whether you know if they're bad. Right. And it's another thing to say bad isn't a valid category. Right. Definitely. That's a really crucial distinction. I'm reminded of Yudkowsky has this moral dilemma about where you have something very small and bad happen to a lot of people or something large and bad happen to one person. Yeah. And part of his 
his opinion on the matter is... Well, I think I can just apply it to garden variety trolley problems. He thinks that there are... That there's a distinction between what you ought to do morally and what produces the best result. And that that mostly comes from um, the state of your knowledge. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's a variant on the trolley problem where you're a surgeon trying to decide where to carve up people and use their organs on needy people. And I think Yudkowsky would at least float the idea that... Um, you can never be sufficiently certain that this is actually going to lead to better results. So right. you need a deontological prohibition against doing it. But the deontological prohibition is instrumentally justified rather than metaphysically justified. I think it's... I want to make a meta level point. Yeah. And if you... Oh, yeah. Um, in talking to you, I've got the sense that you know, I remember reading in college, you know, like all these different moral theories, deontology, you know, utilitarianism, you know, like which one's going to rule the roost? That was always the question that, that kind of the professor would, would talk to you about, you know what I mean? And like, here are the strengths and weaknesses. It seems like it's uh, incredibly case by case. Yeah. You know, and it's like, uh, and they work at different levels, you know yes. what I mean? Yeah, I do. There's a Stephen Case tweet analogizing them to nouns, verbs, and adjectives. Like, if you right. kill... That's great. I, I think that fits really well. Yeah. Like, they do work at different levels. We right. use them to answer different kinds of questions. Right. Yeah. And I see people trying to apply them at the wrong levels and getting confused. Like, arguing that someone's behavior was really, really instrumentally destructive. And so bad, according to uh, utilitarianism. And then using that as a to determine that they're therefore a bad person, which is a question right. about propensity, which doesn't, um, I mean, doing something once is some evidence of having a propensity to do it. But, right. you know, the scope of the, yeah. Yeah, and that, that I think this plays into uh, a lot of our, um, a lot of what people have been talking about recently um, with effective altruism. Yeah. Um, like, so Yarvin, <laughs> he, uh, so, you know, he, he comes in and he's like, you know, we don't care about the bugs. You know, clearly we don't care about the bugs. Like, why do you care about the bugs? Like, this is stupid. Um, and th this is kind of his complaint. It, I, this is in a nutshell. This is not exactly it. Um, but broadly, what I do think is correct, uh, which I think he misses, is it's something like, okay, like if you're running down the trail and you see a being you can help, yeah. you know, it would be a good thing to do to, to do that. Yeah. Um, now, if you have a, a what, what I think is important about effective altruism is like if you're trying to do good, you want to do it in a manner that maximizes that. Yes. You know, so like if you can save, you know, like, you know, a hundred people um, by doing one thing and 50 people by doing the other and everything else is equal, you want to do the hundred. Yeah. Like, and I think, and then people like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, what do you think about that? I think maximizing it is really, really important. Yeah. I was, I think I was 
There is a thing I've learned to expect, and I don't want to confidently accuse him of doing the thing. But I'm very opposed to the thing, and it seems to happen a lot. Yeah. Where the criticism is essentially that caring about the bugs is really weird. Which is different than thinking emphatically that you should not do it. Right. Um, I don't think you should care about the bucks. Yeah. But I don't think the fact that it's really weird is a very strong argument against it. Because I don't think our society has been maximizing this particular thing. Right. So we should expect some some strategies that are very effective to seem very weird Interesting. Yeah, that that that's a really good framing, right? Well, he is like he's very conservative, and like it would make sense. He has just high disgust. Yeah. You know, like high disgust react like reaction to it. It's like this is disgusting. Like, and really, that's filling in for yeah a lot of stuff. I'll reiterate that I don't think we should care about the bugs, <laughs> but I don't like that form of argument. No, yeah, I don't think it's good. Because what, you know, like, I think it, it's a worth, of course, it's it's worth at least thinking about it, right? Yeah. Like, okay, like, because what if the bugs are super sinian and, yes. you know, it, they have a lot of pain or something, and it's, like, really terrible, actually, what we're dealing with insecticides? And Kowski said once that a question, uh, this is, I think, mostly related yeah. The question about a situation you're never going to encounter is important only if you can't answer it because that tells you things about your own models and your own sense of the world. He says it's important whether you would kill Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny only if it's hard for you to decide. If it's easy for you to decide, then it's not an important question because they don't exist. Right. If it's hard for you to decide, then that's like a bug report in your mental algorithms. Right. No doubt. I love that. Yeah, me too. It's interesting. Yeah. People seem to have, you know, different preferences on what matters. Yeah. Like who's in the circle and who's not. Yes. Um, a lot of progress studies people I talk to, especially in like animal welfare, you know, I think it's like there's almost this wig history view of things. Yes. Where, you know, it's like, okay, like the, we are just going to keep expanding this puppy yes. until like we cover everything. Yes. What do you think about that? The most salient thing I think about that is that it's not going to work. People aren't going to actually do it. Yeah. Um, which doesn't mean we shouldn't think about whether it would in some sense be good if they did, but asking them to is not going to work. Um, we really are not wired for that. Right. Um, indefinite expansion. I'm not saying we couldn't expand more. Yeah. Um, that's a complicated question, but there's a Bertrand Russell quote I keep sending you where he says, I always think it's maggots and then I read it and it's lice. He says... That he thinks the best world would be one where every being was full of pure love for every other being. 
but you can't actually love lice. It doesn't work. Try and get you nowhere. It would be a bad idea to lie to yourself that you are making progress toward loving lice because right. that isn't realistically going to happen. Right. And so the fact that it would theoretically be good if we could does not mean, you know, we should be taking action toward that end. Yeah. I'm worried about... There's an old Scott Sumner article where he asks if there's a conservation of bigotry. Um, and he points out that graphs of parents who would be, they ask them, um, would you be upset if your child was marrying someone from a different race? Have gone down just about in lockstep with graphs of parents who would be upset if their child was marrying someone from a different political party. <laughs> oh, I... I... I, I was just about to say something very similar to that. So perhaps it's just like there's there's a finite amount. Yeah. You know, here. Yeah. There's a finite amount of caring we have, and we've got to kind of do distribute it as best we can. Yeah. I, at least I think it's really, it's almost certainly finite. And even if we could expand it, if the actual li- if we weren't at the upper limit yet, I don't know. It feels really dangerous to me. Like, yeah. um, partly it's the Copenhagen interpretation of ethics. Like, it seems to slide over really quickly into either being angry at people or guilting them who help because they're not helping more. Right. I see that a lot. And yeah, and, and that's one of Yarvin's complaints actually about EA. Yeah message you again here is that you know like if you expand it to the bugs like you know you can only take care of things in front of you yes very well um and things you really and and like if you try and take care of everything you're not going to be successful yeah yeah and you're not going to be just an adjacent if you're not actually motivated to do the thing, then you're giving yourself incentives to good heart yourself. Right. That viscerally scares me. Um, putting the processes in my mind to work against each other. Right. But you, it's also true that you have way more information about the people close to you. That's right. That's a good point. There, there's a there's a hard information problem. Like yeah. here. Um, so we talked about that paper. Do you think people? There, there are people that have. I wish we'd go out and like uh, poll people. We should walk around the street in Raleigh with a microphone and start asking. Do you think people that there are people that have a preference that kind of evades a a kind of localist like. Uh, like where people actually care about the bugs yeah. more than they care about their close friends or family or something like that. I would think that would be really rare. That's kind of what I feel like. Yeah. yeah. Prior on it being a signaling thing is always high. That's kind of what I think, right? Yeah. Well, I guess... There are probably some people who hate their close friends and family. That's fair. That's true. Trying to think of exceptions. 
Well, and that's almost the thing where like, oh God, it almost feels like a special case. I don't know. Yeah. You know, like. Like family isn't the same psychological concept, even if it pertains yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, going off that question, do you think there is anything other than, like, really, like, in a substantial way, other than essentially kin um, preference? You know what I mean? Like, do you think, like, so that you could think of, like, the moral circle as a, as a line, like, slipping downward and on uh, down and to the right. And at the top left corner... We've got, you know, your family and then friends, you know, pets, things like that. People are close to you. And then beyond that, it starts becoming more kin adjacent, I feel like. So it's like, well, it's all of humanity and it's mammals that are close to humanity. Yeah. You know, chimpanzees, you know, little bonobos and then chimpanzees and then gorillas or, you know, and all down. And then it's like, I don't know, it's uh, maybe reptiles or birds or something and yeah. then it feels so forth. more satisfying to me because we do have pets yeah i mean and they're more detached from us than our people but many right. of us care about our specific pets more than random other people right so it feels more like you need something for your uh empathic instinct to grab onto gotcha and dogs have it yeah and cockroaches I don't think have it. Yeah. Now, some people do have them as pets, but maybe yeah. that's going around that. Yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, I did want to say signaling is always a salient hypothesis. There probably are, if you're asking, do there exist people with this psychological characteristic? Well, there's a the lot of people. Almost, yes. <laughs> It's a separate question. Right. Uh, I really, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it has to be built on something like Ken Selection. But we're adaptation executors, not fiction max, not, I'm um, sorry, not fitness maximizers. Right. Do you, um, I see this calculus sometimes from EAs, like effective altruists, where they try and think about, like, you know, how conscious different animals are. Yeah. Like, so, you know, like, oh, here's a great example. Um, crows, yes. corvids, like, are really, really smart. smart. Like, really smart. Like, to the point where, you know, they could be humans on, like, the Monty Hall problem. And yeah. Crap like that. Like, holy mackerel, you know, like, this is kind of, this is, this is weird. It's like an alien intelligence, right? Yes. You know, do you count them more than, you know, crocodiles or something like that? And, like, is that a useful metric? Like, does, like, neuron density matter or, like, something like that? Yeah, or is it a proxy for what matters? I mean, maybe it matters itself. Maybe it correlates with what matters. Um the hard problem of consciousness seems really relevant here. And That's right. Yeah. So do you think um, it's, well, first of all, do you think some things are 
more quote unquote more conscious than others. That's a really weird. Yeah. I'm not even sure that's like a, a question that It's I a can good ask. question. Uh, I think some things aren't conscious, but my intuition of consciousness is more that it's a Boolean. But like maybe yes or not. that's what I feel like. Yeah. I guess let's lay that out. Like, okay, what is conscious and what's like not conscious? It seems like rocks yes. are probably not conscious. No. As best we can tell. Yes. Uh, humans. Yes. We know. As best as we know. Yes. Conscious. Yes, except for Simon. Uh, is it Simon Brown? That one case study Scott Alexander found of the guy who was, he was in a scuffle and he was a priest, so he interpreted it in religious terms, but he describes suddenly not having conscious experiences anymore. And he's very emphatic that he, he's a priest in um, like yeah. 100, 150 years ago. Uh, he's in a scuffle with a couple of thieves. He accidentally kills one. Um, and then he recounts that he has lost his soul, which doesn't seem to alter his behavior other than claiming that he's lost his soul. And when people ask him about it, he describes not having what we would currently say is not experiencing qualia anymore. There's no record of an injury, but I keep wanting to say head injury. TBI. Yeah. Oh, that's so weird. It goes... People are... I mean, they're just so insanely variable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't want to undercount it, but it's, yeah, it's just like, yeah, well, and, and that goes more broadly to the hard problem of consciousness. It's just like really difficult to get yeah. one's mind around. I think the redness, the experience of seeing red is the sort of like the stock example. Yeah. Computers can process information, but I don't think we think they're conscious. Yeah. I don't think they're conscious. Like the sense of being alive, the sense of sense of sensing. Yeah. Do you think it would be possible to, to for AGI to be to be conscious? Yeah. I mean, I think for consciousness to interact with um physics. And it has to interact with physics if we can write papers about consciousness. Right. Um, it has to be able, you have to be able to get there through physics. Maybe weird physics, maybe quantum physics, but there's got to be a way. Right. There's a, um, oh, there's a wacky dude. I read this like, it's like in high school. Some guy who worked on the Large Hadron Collider. Oh. He has a PhD in physics. Maybe it's Bernardo, Bernardo Castro. He's never gotten any real traction. I mean, he's got some like weird cult followers. So like caveat, like I'm inserting a lot of epistemic, you know, caveats here. You know, uh, one should be very careful. But he's got this idea that consciousness, perhaps um, brains are something like consciousness receivers. Yeah. Now that's neat. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like a, you could think of like a consciousness as a, pool of water yeah and then you can have like a 
if you have eddies in the water, like, yes. you know, vortex in the water, you know, that's kind of a brain. Like that's, uh, that's one of the ways he talks about it. And I think that's actually, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Right. Because yeah. like it explained why TBI can alter consciousness and yeah. things like that. Like, uh, anyway, weird, weird thoughts. Yeah. That makes, that could be. And, well, nod toward Descartes was it? no leaving it two clocks theory. He says if you wind up two clocks um, and put them in separate rooms yeah. and send them to the same time, one clock will chime just when the other clock is chiming, but it's not causing the other clock to chime. And that was his theory about the, the same that consciousness correlates with changes in the physical world, but those don't necessarily cause changes to consciousness. He thought God had set that up, which, you know, lets you explain what seems like a pretty big coincidence. Right. But there could be other, I think looking to third causes, causing both things, is a way things could be. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah. So we're not sold on things being quote, more conscious than others. Yeah. Per se. I doubt it. Yeah. But I don't know. But saying I don't know is not helpful, so I'll just say I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any instinctive uh, thought on like you know, fungi versus plants or anything like that. Like when we go that far out. They don't seem conscious to me. Instinctively. Well, I guess not conscious, but just like their moral worth. I guess what Like comparing the two. Feels pretty close to zero. I think I see them as more resources. Gotcha. This is another question I had. I I was talking to um, kind of a philosophy PhD student recently, and he had written this paper about um, you know death and is death bad? And you know it's clearly bad for the living because it's like it alienates you from the dead. Yeah. Which this is a that's a bad thing. And I'm not really sure it's anything that we can even really know. I mean, yeah. that's the I think that's the real problem. I do have that sense. I was tempted to say that about moral worth in plants. Right. I mean, I d- I'm having a very strong temptation to point out that I don't know. But I don't know if anyone knows. And you asked about my intuition. Right. Trees are really pretty. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And this, uh, I guess, going off of that, we were thinking, thinking about death, you know, and, and, you know, how do we value, you know, he, he had, so his essay, he talks about, well, what if one day we have sufficient technology, you know, we figure out some new kind of physics and we can bring everyone back from the dead. Yeah. And, you know, like, 
what's worth more you know is it people who have died and already lived or is it people in the future who have not yet lived um and i think this is i I just want to get brawley your take on you know what do you think about humans in the future and how we should value their their lives and and how should we think about them you know what i mean because this plays off the moral circle, right? Like, you know, like how concerned are you about existential risks yes. hundreds of thousands of years in the future? Or like, you know, it's very different if it's a thousand years or a hundred years. Like, Yeah, I have that sense. Uh. See, I have the sense that I'm bad at reasoning about this, but I'm not sure I'm actually worse than average. Yeah, well, this is it's probably... <laughs> I think... Um, I think, I don't think anyone is good at it, that, that's for sure. I have the sense that if they were suffering horribly, that would be very bad. Yeah. I don't have the sense that we have an obligation to maximize their numbers. Got Which it. means we don't have an obligation to bring into being the marginal person in the future. I do have the sense that it would be sad if humanity went extinct altogether. Uh, it feels sad to think of them being very, very small numbers. Right. But I don't have the sense that any person who could be were doing bad by them by not bringing them into being. Yeah. This is related to your alien comment earlier. You know? Yeah. You know, do you find it odd that, you know, we appear to be the only you know, conscious life in the galaxy or anywhere else. Between somewhat odd and very odd. Um, my understanding, the big variable is how improbable it is, conscious life. Uh, you know, I mean, if I were to take out a fear coin and flip it ten times and get heads three times and tails seven times uh, I wouldn't found, find that odd if I flipped it 10,000 times and got heads every time I would find that very very odd um, something's so, wrong with your uh, coin yeah that's, that's what, what I would think, think. Um, so the universe is so big that it seems very odd that uh, we get life out of it exactly once yeah. Or in exactly one planet. Right. And we're not seeing what we think we would see if there were was life on a bunch of other planets. So yeah, it's definitely at least somewhat odd. I wish I had a better sense of how improbable it is to get life even once. They've done some experience experiments on this. Yeah. Have you seen this where you know you like you try to you know you know, you try to recreate the conditions of the primordial soup and see if you can get like some really simple like amino acids or something, whatever, yeah. whatever the the precursor is. You know, yeah, bumping around. I haven't. What did they find? Uh, my sister was telling me about this, so this is second order, and I haven't read it. Uh, but it was something like, uh, you know, they are they are able to make it happen with some yeah. amount of oh. takes a lot. It's pretty random. This also touches on anthropic reasoning. Like, we wouldn't be having this conversation if life hadn't 
come into being exactly once. I have a hard time reasoning about anthropic reasoning. You want to talk about that a little bit more? Uh, I think I mostly get it from Nick Bostrom. Yeah. Um, talking about uh, your ability to condition on your own uh, existence. Gotcha. Um, me. for a quick Google. Yeah. There is a restrictive lower bound on how statistically probable our observations of the universe are, given that we could only exist in the particular type of universe capable of developing and sustaining sentient life. So I think um, Scott's first essay for less wrong chronologically it was an essay arguing that animals are probably not conscious because there are so many more animals than there are people that if they were conscious you would probably be an animal and not a person <laughs> which yeah it seems nuts yeah um, have you um What's the, uh, oh man, the, uh, the equation where they try and reason out how improbable, like. Drake. Is that the equation where they. That might be the name of it. I don't know the equation. Uh, the one, the aliens, uh, you know, like what are the probability given it how much we've seen so far with telescopes? I think Drake. Yeah. really confusing what's your sense of how much we've seen versus you see what i'm saying yeah because uh, that matters how weird it is right like there's know. a lot um i think i think i think of that question as being screened off partly by the fact that i would expect it to be very 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 visible like if one of them mishandles ai and builds a paperclip maximizer. Yeah, you would see it. See yeah. a giant paperclip. Yeah. We'd be the giant paperclip. Yeah, we would be the giant paperclip. That's right. Do you think there is some... some? What do you tend to think about these great filter arguments where, like, there's some hard constraint where, you know, maybe you just end up, like, at some level organization, there's too much entropy or something, and it all just blows up, like, with, with civilization? Well, it's addressing... It's certainly clearly addressing something that's very puzzling, which is why we don't see alien civilizations. Right. Um, but the thing is, you have to assume the Great Filter works. I mean, it would be surprising if there were, like, two other alien civilizations and they both got caught. Right. Um, so we're thinking of something closer to a physical law than just a failure mode civilizations can wander into sometimes. Right. right. And it's hard for me to see anything that's a hard physical law. Yeah, and I don't like... I, 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 I'm somewhat skeptical of like that, yes. that hard physical law element of the Great 
filter. It's like, oh, you know, this is what happens. Because, you know, humans have agency. Yeah, we do. You know, like, we have, uh, I mean, maybe no other aliens have agency, and that's what, you know, <laughs> like, maybe there's something weird going on there. Yeah. But we do have the ability to, if we can recognize problem, actually, we're fairly good at managing coming yeah. up with solutions. It honestly feels like there's a failure mode I think people get into where um, there are a lot of phenomena they don't understand. And so they put all the phenomena under the same heading. And that feels like reducing the things they don't understand to one factor. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're in the middle ages and you don't know why any you know physics type stuff happens yeah newton yeah. hasn't done his stuff yet yeah um you can explain all of it by saying god did it yeah. but you haven't really explained it because you can't make predictions right but it feels like there's just that one thing you haven't explained like yeah. it's and the great filter feels a little bit like that to me like we're right. postulating something that works with astonishing regularity. Right. We don't know what it could be. Yeah. That that, that reminds me of uh, this anecdote I got from this lecture Gerard gave. Yeah. And he talks about like, well, you know, like, like how do we get science? You know, like the idea is like we, we got science and then we stopped burning witches. Yeah. But maybe we got science because we stopped burning witches. Yeah. You know. That would be neat. I don't know. That fits my... It lights up the happy parts of my brain. Right. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, when you think the scapegoat is the reason why the crops fail, yeah. you know, you're never going to look for yeah. why that might not be the case. And, I mean, in a witch-burning environment, there's a very strong incentive not to stand out because that's someone right. can target you. And that's going to limit innovation. I Absolutely. Mean, think it might limit it really quite a lot yeah well that i mean that's a that's a thought i have you know like why is china unable to produce yeah. innovation like the u.s when they have like you know, if you look at the pisa scores yep they're like a quarter of the human race yeah yes and their pisa scores are yes. like scary And that actually gives me a lot of hope for the U.S. In some sense, like, it's very chaotic, but, you know, we, we don't, well, we are smashing the outliers more yes. than we used to, which is a bad trend, yes. but we still smash them much less. Yes. And actually, apparently, um, one of the big takeaways G had from, I'm getting the second head hand, so this could be false, but one of the big takeaways G had from the cultural revolution was it was too, uh, you know, it was led by people on the ground and that's yeah. why it didn't work. And it, we need to more centrally control everyone. Mm. And that's the real answer. And I think that just no. does not lend itself. I mean, that just makes your problems worse, right? Yeah, it does. Ah. I'm not overly, maybe I should be. I'm not, Intuitively, it feels like we're not going to have a long-term problem out competing China. They have loads of resources, but um, if we have a, 
I think even a 10% increase in uh, innovation is going to be decisive with the tech level we're at now. You know what worries me? What? Um, they're able to get our stuff really fast. Yeah. You know, like, we do have the ability to create this stuff. Like, they yep. cannot. But if they can get it in six months. Yeah, then that does. I hadn't been. They can always get it in six months, and there's oh. nothing we can do about it. You know, maybe we can get better yeah. at, at preventing that from happening. It does. I mean, if we're not better at then that does limit the upshot of the advantage of more innovation. Yeah. And we're not doing... And there's a question, is our ability to innovate dropping? I'm pretty sure it has dropped. It has dropped. I think you're absolutely so right. if that's a process that's going to continue, I mean, if we're going to get worse than we are now, then that would be very concerning. Yes. And it makes it just very difficult. Yeah. Just very difficult. Oh, it's just a little bit. I think we should talk more about China. Um, yeah. Just why? Because I find it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, th- this is one of my big X-risk concerns, actually. Yeah. Oh. It's like, I do think... Um, China... You know, there's a... What? A quarter or a third of the world's population locked up. Yeah. Um. You know, they just banned it. So, you know, you can't play more than an hour of video yeah. games. <laughs> yeah, and that's a funny example. Yeah. It's not particularly malicious. Oh. Well. But it's still like, you know. Yes. Well, it raises it raises two sorts of alarm bells for me. Um, The first is I really like video games. Yeah. And maybe in a broader sense, little pleasures, stuff that it's hard to make a movie about enjoying. I think account for a substantial percentage of what makes life worth living. Yeah. You can give up a little pleasure, but if you're being run by people who are looking over your life and seeing what pleasures they can justify, things get miserable very, very fast. Yeah. Um, and secondly, central planners suck at foreseeing what, um, what's actually necessary long term. Right. I mean, it's a very hard problem, but I think they actually probably do a little bit worse than chance because they're trying to conserve their own ability to predict and manipulate the system, and things with very high upside tend to disrupt that. Yeah. Bertrand Russell called it, I've never gotten the phrase, um, the ideal of the inpatient administrator. <laughs> oh, that's great. Which is, and if you have one of those running things, then... You know, you're almost not allowed to do big, impressive things that move right. everything forward. Yeah. I do. And, and also, like, and beyond even what you said, I think there's like a, I think things can get really bad really fast. Yeah. In systems like that. Yeah. And like, you know, like it kind of works okay. Like things aren't terrible, but, you know, it turns into killing fields and things yes. like that very quickly very quickly especially with the succession problem i mean yeah you know there's like how do you solve the succession problem we haven't i spent some time thinking about it uh, well it's been a few years yeah but, um i spent some time thinking about it and it's really really hard 
Yeah. And see, it's hard because if you have a solution to the succession problem that tends to put uh, good people into power and works most of the time, but it fails this one time, then you get killing fields if it fails badly enough. And so it's both a difficult problem and a problem that um, partial solutions are sort of flatly not good enough. Right. Yeah. And I worry about it because, you know, a lot of smart people like you spent a significant amount of, amount, amount of time thinking about it. And God, you know, have been able to un- <laughs> been unable to find anything huh. satisfactory. I'm hopeful about technology changes the landscape. Technology legitimately changes the landscape. I think people don't, um, they think of technology as finding a way to solve the particular sandbox problem. Right. But a lot of the time it opens up whole new. So that is the sort of, I mean, it's almost rhetorically speaking a cheat to say maybe technology would solve it because you can always say that. But yeah. it's also true. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we just need... No, I'm doing that thing I was criticizing other people for doing. Uh, I was going to say we need one new tool, but I'm moving all the difficulty of the problem onto that tool, which I don't know why it is. Right. And perhaps it's just something we have to live with, right? Like yeah. Just... Yeah, I don't know. China is deeply scary to me. Yes. You know, Xi wants Taiwan. Yeah. And he wants it before he's gone. Uh-huh. And we have... You know, it's weird. It, it, there's this weird psychosocial thing yeah. where Taiwan, you know, they, they could resist and they could prevent this, prevent it from happening. Like it's, it's easy, you know, like it's an Island. Yeah. There's a strait. Yeah. Um, you just need to blow those boats out of the water and guerrilla warfare. And that's the answer. And Sam's are cheap. Yeah. You know, like service air missiles are like, uh, really cheap like there's all these like kinds of things you can do but i don't think they believe they can win like i don't think they believe they can win and america doesn't believe they can defend it yeah like you know strategically we don't think it's possible and so we're not going to try and you know they're probably gonna be able to get it I, i think that's the most likely scenario i agree with that i mean you gave me some reason to rethink what I thought earlier, but I was meaning I'm not too worried about the type of, I'm not as worried about the type of civilization China is outcompeting the type of civilization oh, we've traditionally been. I'm very worried about, I mean, in the short term, you have a bunch of people with a lot of power who don't seem aligned with our interests. Right. That's a really good point. We have been the type of civilization that could solve this problem. Yeah. It seems like we're less like that civilization. Huh. And perhaps that's what we need to yeah. you know, kind of 
solve things a little bit. Cowboys. Cowboys. Huh. I love that quote. That was, that was a great yeah. quote. Do you, do you want to repeat that quote? I think you should repeat that quote. I don't have it queued up, but it was basically uh, the cowboy. Well, I should be able to because it was Scott, wasn't it? Yeah. So this is uh, from Scott's. What was the post? What was the post called? Um, the Alzheimer's drug. Eduminicap. Is that how you pronounce it? I have no idea how you pronounce it. <laughs> We've only read it. That being a cowboy has moved from being a complimentary term to being a much less complimentary Derogatory term. term. And that uh, heralds bad things. I'm looking for it. but uh, Yes, it does. I may have it. Yes. I was tickled to hear Dr. Gura describe Dr. Jennings as a cowboy because I've been trying to make the case that the point where a cowboy, used metaphorically to mean someone who is willing to take initiative, went from complimentary to pejorative marked the beginning of the end for a civilization, and we need to make it a compliment again. He's right. Yeah. You know, this... Oh, this is, reminds me. There's a great anecdote. So... Have you ever been to Chickamauga? No. So it was one of the largest battles in the Civil War, and it was in Georgia, just south of Chattanooga. Yeah. It was a massive battle. And, you know, I'm driving around the battlefield, checking things out. You know, I'd love to go check out history and stuff. Really nice national park. And there's a big hill, and on the hill, there's a monument to, to a Union general. It wasn't a general. He was like a colonel. And he observed that repeating rifles were much more effective than the traditional muskets that they're using. Right. You know, you don't have to load them like clearly. Um, but he could not convince the bureaucracy to buy these repeating rifles for him. He's like, clearly this is highly, this is much more effective. Like, and to any like common sense person, like this makes sense. Yeah. Um, he had to go raise money in his hometown. All the soldiers put up personal capital to get these weapons, uh, these Colt repeating rifles, and um, had to get a bank loan and things like that. And finally, he was vindicated. But I think about that a lot, like how things can just be like clearly screwed up. There's this $20 bill lying on the sidewalk. You know, you can't requisition any funds to do this, even though it's clearly, it wasn't expensive, and it was like clearly massively, this massive advantage. Yeah. Like, and, and if you lose people that are willing to do that, and he said advantage, eventually the whole regular army got them right. But, you know, if you don't have people that can do that, man, things are just static. Yeah. Agree yeah. with that. I reread Scott's post about IRBs the other night. Oh, He's yeah? trying to do a very simple, uh, very ethically uncontroversial study. Basically just writing down results. Yeah. And they made it very, very, very difficult for him. And I was thinking how it it sort of goes beyond the usual. Like, there are definitely trade-offs related to bureaucracy. By making things legible and controllable, you drain a lot of the flexibility. But you make right. things legible and controllable, yeah. which have big upsides. And I was thinking how hard it was to justify the behavior he was describing in terms of the trade-offs that tend to come up. It was just nuts. Yeah. 
it's it's swung so far in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even even Lincoln struggled with this yeah. immensely. And we think of him as like this near monarch president who's actually able to really get things done. Yep. Um, I've been re- reading a book on it. You know, McClellan was his kind of general for the Army of the Potomac, which was the main fighting force for the Union, uh, the Federals. And they were, um, and he was just unwilling to attack, yeah. even though he had double the number of troops. Huh. Like, you know, he's just like, because he didn't want to suffer defeat. Like he was trying to avoid it at all costs. Hmm. And Lincoln's trying to get him to do it and he just cannot get him to do it. Eventually just has to fire him. Yeah. It's interesting how entrenched bureaucracy will just prevent anything yeah. from happening because there is like incentive for them not to go out and allow things to happen. Like there's only downside if they allow Scott to go. Yeah. Um, perform this study, which has very, it has, no downside really yep. i mean you know maybe negative pr somehow yeah but that's enough yep not good no it's not good at all it's it's a huge problem and i have no idea what to do about it. yeah it almost feels like it's just one of these things you just have to reset it every yeah. once in a while I think that's the only path forward. That could work. Move the headquarters. You just got to move. <laughs> yeah, that's my. That's one of my favorites. It's just like uh, you just move the headquarters, you know, a couple hundred miles one direction or the other, and make everybody come into work. Yeah. And you just get to reset it. Yeah. You have to do this every 20, 30 years. Like that's the time scale. Yep. Maybe that's what it takes. Yeah. That's one thing I think about. Um, it's like a Chesterton Spence argument, but I think Yarvin's like way too confident. Yes. About like uh, like monarchies not. Yes. Messing things up. Yeah, I. Yeah, you know, it's a rule of thumb, but it works really well for me. His critiques of the existing system are good. His proposed solutions are much less good. There's still yeah. some value there, but yeah. And there's a problem, like you know, what do you do to make things more effective? Yeah, I don't know. I don't either. Anyway, the moral circle. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Nah. No, it's feeling a little daunted by the problem at the moment actually oh yeah which probably isn't the best headspace to be in but you have to work through it that's right i think the big takeaway for me from the conversation is one should be aware that our moral like uh, what we care about is inherently limited Yep. And we only get to spend it in a couple places, so we should be, we should just, I think being aware of that is important. Yep. I'm having a hard time articulating why exactly. No, it is. It's really important so you don't end up lying to yourself about what you're doing and why you're doing it. You also, you have better information about the people closer to you. And um, your attempts to help them are 
I mean, this varies a lot attempt by attempt. And I don't want to put everyone trying to help people far away in the same. But, you know, in the worst case scenario, it's less likely to end up like the Great Leap Forward. Like, you know, massively backfiring. It's hard to help your parents in a way that massively backfires in that same way. Yeah, you know, it's... That, that, that's such a good point. And this this comes full circle with a lot of things we've been talking about. Like, clearly, a lot of things are broken. Yeah. A lot of things, like, things don't work as well as they used to. And they need to be fixed. Yeah. But there's a failure mode, which is the Great Leap Forward. Yes. And, you know, and how do you do things without the Great Leap Forward happening is something you should be very aware of. Yeah. Have you read uh, It's Time to Build by Mark Andreessen? No. Good. Interesting. I'll make a note of it. It's essentially this uh, essay he wrote during the beginning of the pandemic. You know, it's time to come together and we're going to start building stuff again. You know, in this country, we're going to actually build stuff in the physical world and make things better. Kind of a call to action. Yeah. But, you know, then again, it's hard to see how, this is not necessarily true, but in general, I think building things, maybe I need to caveat this more severely, uh, it's generally positive, yeah. I think. Um, I think where you get in trouble is where you think certain people are the problem. Yeah. I don't think you need to caveat that. <laughs> But technology could be bad, you know, like yeah. AGI, right? Like AGI could come oh, yeah. paperclip us all, and that's not good. It's a good guideline. And that failure mode where you decide that you need to... Well, I think it's a two-part failure mode. First, you decide that the current social institutions are in the way of your building things. So they need to be destroyed. And secondly, you use that as an excuse not to think, not to do any of the actually difficult builds, building bare social institutions. Right. That never works. That's very good. That's a great point. But it's very difficult to yeah. build new social institutions. Yeah, it is. I do see in some sense, though, probably need to cut this too um i feel there's a certain circulation of the elite that is not it's not imminent but and it's not a hundred years off but maybe it's 20 to 50 years off you know, I just I see a lot of people who are very smart and capable who have no real power in the regime. Yeah. Who I think could perhaps do a better job. Yes. Um and if, and you know, things what's the Keynes line things can stay uh 
rational a lot longer yeah. than they solvent. Um, that's my caveat there, but I do think I, there, there's hope. I mean, it's possible. There's hope here. Yeah. The um, control of the current elites is definitely fraying. I mean, you know, Harvard or the New York Times or even the ACLU, it doesn't buy you what it used to. Yeah, that's true. It's true. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I see... I was working on something I can't talk about yeah. right yet, but um, it talked anyway. I, in working on this thing, I encountered the breakdown of Harvard admi- admissions. Yeah, and you know, only about twenty to thirty percent of the people that got in got in on quote unquote merit. Like so, yeah. like they're really they've achieved a lot in their educational lives. You know, their uh, you know SAT scores are awesome. You know, most of it is like you play a really weird sport. You, um, your legacy admit there's, you know, parents gave a lot of money. There's all these weird proxies for it, right? Yeah. There's a great line in the Young Pope where he taught, they talk about, uh, you know, one of the good, one of the uh, characters. She's like, I went to Harvard. And the Pope says, I don't care. You know, Harvard is decline. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. I think it's more obvious on... It's it's just a dumb thing that happened, I think. I think... I was talking to my mom about Steven Pinker. And oh, said, nice. He works at Harvard, but I like him a lot. She <laughs> said, but you like him a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he seems good. Yeah. No, but you said, but. And, yeah. You know, I don't... Know that I actually think that Harvard is an anti-signal at that point, at this point. But that was sort of my sense of it. But I guess you have to specify anti-signal of what I think of them as. They're not all about truth anymore. Yes. That that's it's about. I mean, it's about it's about power. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's what's corrupt. Yeah. You know, it masquerades as being about truth, but it's about power. Yeah. And you can't have both. Yep. Um, that that reminds me, do you remember the old Scott post, Harvard Admissions, much more than you wanted to know? Yeah. I love that post. It was really good. You know, and uh, up until 19, like the 30s, I want to say, in the four, right before the GI Bill, in the GI Bill, um, you could... You know, the Harvard's admissions rate was was ninety percent. Yeah. Like you could you you know you pass the test you can go to Harvard. Yeah. I went to the college I went to had a really high acceptance rate, and I thought I was much younger, and I didn't know who Scott was, and I was totally apart from. So I thought that probably meant they weren't good Harding. That right. they weren't trying to be elites. They were trying to learn about the world. Yeah. And that turned out to be a very, very bad prediction on my part. <laughs> That's right. You know, you're, you're working with whatever whatever you got. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's tough to it's tough to see these things until you're in them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that shift of universities becoming 
like power selection mechanisms instead of um, like truth seeking institutions. Like that's why everybody wanted to go. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, (laughs) when it's just like, Oh, we're going to sit around and try and figure out what's true. It's like the rationalist community. And there's just like, there's a couple of dudes, you know, in each city, you know, there's like 20 here and that's a couple million people. And it's not really competitive. Yeah. But geek, Mops, sociopaths, model looks really relevant to me. Universities used to be pretty much all geeks. Yeah. And can you can you define those those three? Oh, uh, it's a model of um I think subcultures, where geeks build stuff because it's neat and they like it. Yeah. That attract mops who also like the stuff but yeah. uh, can't build it, but yeah. oftentimes contribute in you know other ways. Right. Um, the presence of the mops is a resource. It's something that uh, could be used to gain power, but the geeks aren't trying to use it to gain power. Yeah. And so that's, you know, money lying on the ground for sociopaths. Yeah. Not necessarily in the clinical sense, but right. people who are motivated by power. Uh, they come in and modify the subculture to make it better at gaining power, which means it stops being good at doing what the geeks wanted to build it to do. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Eat it. My favorite example of this is from, um, and there's a historian Bill Clinton loved, and I can't remember the name of this book he wrote, but in it, as a side note, he wrote about a ton of things, um, but he describes the evolution of American football. Yeah. And, you know, okay, like, you know, I love American football. I feel bad about it because of the TBI thing, but, you know, that's yeah. a discussion for another day. Uh, but, you know, American football was a game that you played at school because they thought it would make you healthy and you get to huh. hung out. Okay. Huh. And now, and then they started playing it against each other, you know, yeah. you know, Harvey and Yale would play. And now suddenly, you know, mops come in, sociopaths huh. come in and now it's this, you know, billion dollar industry. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, it's not about fitness and camaraderie yeah. anymore at all. Right. Ah. That's a good example. It's interesting. Is this inevitable, do you think? It's certainly a very strong attractor. So I think it's one of those problems that we always have with us, but I do think it can be staved off sometimes. Nice. And delayed. And even the fact that it takes time to set in, you know, I mean, is having children pointless because eventually (laughs) they will die? Right. I don't think so. No. I think... it's good to identify it as a problem i'm you know cards on the table i'm feeling kind of it could be the weather or i'm in a mood where things look more hopeless to me now than they probably really are interesting nah just something tough but i think clarity helps i think you could say i have a lot of faith in the creation of clarity um or phrased differently, I have a very strong default heuristic that creating clarity around problems helps even if you can't see solutions because once the problems are clear, maybe someone else can. Right. Or people can get out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what's scary to me is like, you know, you know, there's a good, 
there's a good chance like you are seeing things abundantly clearly and it, and we we do find ourselves at a very difficult place yeah. i don't want to say hopeless because there's always yeah it's like whenever i watch american football you know my wife you know like last night we're watching carolina yeah. tar heels first game of the season and you know we're down a lot of points yeah she's like we should just turn it off I'm like no, you, you never turn it off yeah you always got to believe, and you know it's a stupid signaling, yeah. like tribal thing. Nah. I'm like, you know, you always, you always have to believe. I'm a little. It's almost a side thing, but I mean, it's not stupid signaling. Signaling is one of the things people do, and it's good to be able to talk about it. But I don't want to reflexively denigrate it unless we have some reason why this particular piece of signaling is destructive. Right. I don't know. That's probably a whole other podcast. <laughs> probably so. But. but you're talking about what I will say about you being really worried about where we are. You know, I think you're probably seeing it clearly. But what I will say is being worried about it is a good thing because it means there's there's a chance. Yeah. You know? If you're not worried about coming back, if you're not worried about turning things around yep you really don't have any chance no being worried is a good sign being it's worried a good, is a good thing yeah like oftentimes like yeah um i don't know what more to say about but this is an i think this is actually an important thing for people generally if you ever have you ever been through like a cbt book or anything like that uh dad's a psychologist so nice. i probably know i don't think i've ever actually sat down and read the whole book about it so but. i was curious so i read the one scott recommends yeah doing great oh. it's very interesting most of it is reframing that but i think it's it's actually true most of it is like a lot of people you know they get in bad places and they feel bad about themselves or they're or they're, they're worried about things happening and it's actually it's a positive quality. Yeah. It truly is because if you're like, honestly, if you don't believe, like if you're not worried about something, if you're not focused and you know, if something's negative and you're worried about something negative happening, yeah. it's not going to be a positive emotion to yeah. focus on it. No. Um, but it does give you a chance at, at working it out. So. Yeah. Directs attention to where there are problems. Right. And you gotta define it to get yeah. anywhere. It seems. Hmm. It seems important to distinguish signaling from deceptive signaling. I'm not even sure not turning the football game off is signaling, but it feels like <laughs> that's part of, like it's meaning making. Right. And if we stop doing everything like that, we'd be in this sort of Disneyland with no children situation. Right. Have you thought at all about what meaning is? Some. Um, it seems connected to narrative. And it seems connected to counterfactuals. 
Um, I don't have firm conclusions. I did read Camus. Oh, yeah? Who, you know, was supposed to be the meaning guy. And I feel like I got some useful stuff out of that, but not as... I feel like we always... Once we've identified him as the meaning guy, we treat him as solving more than he really does. <laughs> what were your takeaways from Camus? Partly that I should stop thinking of the end goal as being a place with no mortals. That it doesn't necessarily... My takeaway was you don't have to be pushing the same boulder up a hill, but you're going to end up pushing something that um, it's useful to try to find graphication in that, that if gotcha. you can only be happy with end states, you won't spend a lot of your life there, and that will right. suck. Um, some stuff that's hard to define about creation of meaning. Uh, play acting. People uh, trying to invest meanings in things in their own life. That didn't work as well for me as he seemed to think it was going to, but it didn't work, you know, a zero amount. We brought video games earlier, and, you know, I drive some... That is like the archetypal example of a meaningless, hollow, empty activity, but, you know, sometimes it really is enjoyable in a way that seems meaning-adjacent. I'm very sympathetic. I don't want to shut down people arguing that that's ultimately bad for accelerationist reasons, that it makes people less likely to do things that will bring them more meaning. But I do think it brings a non-zero amount of meaning by itself. And so I would frame it as this thing is medium-level good and keeps people from doing things that are more good rather than this thing is bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, it could also keep people from doing things that are yes. bad and meaningful. Yeah. My own experience has been that video games are a plus, but um, I'm not at all confident that I'm typical there. Yeah. Uh, partly they give me, I can talk to my sister about them, or, you know, sometimes I'm playing them with the window open and it's a beautiful day outside, and my dog has, I keep a bed in the game room so she can curl up at my feet. Nice. And, uh, you know, it just, it doesn't feel like an entirely f fake experience in yeah. terms of the, um, well, I think part of that is like, like why video games have gotten so important. It's, it's part of this conversation we've had earlier where you know, we've locked people out of really being able to do a lot of things. Yeah. It's like Scott's IRB thing. Yeah. You know, he, he cannot go do this yeah. study, which would be helpful. It's like really simple. And it's like, man, we've just put so many brick walls in front of him. Yeah, we do. It's he just is. gotten really difficult. Yeah. He has a post. Um, what is it? It was on Slate Star Codex. So old, but it was self-serving bias oh yeah he uses i think it was i forget it was maybe new jersey was passing a law that would let customers do their own service in gas stations oh it was oregon, oregon. Yeah, yeah yeah it was 
And he was using that as a jumping off point to talk about, you know, you need a license to braid hair in a lot of states. Yeah. Um, that really does seem to have grown significantly. I think one thing I would set up if I had the power to be pushing things would be to aim for some kind of, maybe say up so regulations expired unless they were renewed. Yeah. To make it, you know, an active decision, make it easy enough to renew them, but ensure that someone has to go on record and say, yeah, I think this is a good idea and we should keep it rather yeah. than doing it because it's what's on the books. and Right. Some kind of automatic provision to... Yeah. You know, occupational licensing. Yeah. That you mentioned. Um, you know, I thought about it for a little bit, kind of talked about it with folks. Um, there's kind of Koch Brothers adjacent uh, funded, yeah. you know, nonprofits who work on that. Yeah. You know, they really work on that. I'm like, and, and I thought about it, you know, like, okay, it's a real problem. Like, it's, it's a serious, it's a serious problem. My worry with with work, I didn't end up doing it. Obviously, I'm sitting here, uh, but like, my worry with what they're doing is it feels like some kind of crazy trench warfare. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, man, you know, yeah, they're fairly right adjacent. They'll work with anybody, but yeah. that's a very libertarian, fairly libertarian position. And it's just trench warfare. I mean, I just don't know, like, if you can ever get anywhere yeah. doing that kind of thing. If you look at um, warfare historically, uh, the losers tend to have a specific vision, and the winners tend to have a general sort of totalizing vision. I wonder, like, do you think, like, like why, why is it more important, like? for winning to be focused on this like uh on that kind of vision do you see what i'm saying yeah i'm not sure uh let me think see it doesn't feel like a total opaque mystery but it's hard to get into um I think it was Paul. It was either Paul Graham or Eliezer Yudkowsky says, "If you're going to start a startup, you need a business plan. You will not follow the business plan. Yeah. Reality won't comport with the business plan. But you need the business plan to demonstrate that there is a conceptually possible way you can win and to concretize both your intuitions and the potential problems. Having a business plan lets you see, oh, this is an obstacle, and right. you can't lie to yourself that's not an obstacle or hope it will." It at least makes it harder to do that. Yeah. Um, I think it might be like that. If you have a vision of the way the world works when you win, it makes it much easier to think about things even way... You're likely to strategize more effectively than if you're trying to cross that bridge when you come to it. Yeah. Um, I think that's part of it. Scott has a post called the price of glee in china what's that or he's looking at research self-report and i'm particularly skeptical of self-report in this area and pretty skeptical of it and yeah but he's looking at china doing better economically and people giving similar reports on surveys about how happy they are oh, which raises questions about does economic growth really make people happier yeah now i think there is uh 
happiness is internal. I mean, I don't want to say it's subjective because you hear that as it's arbitrary. Right. But and I don't think it's arbitrary. We don't have a way to. If you ask people, um, how many times have you got drunk in the last month, they might lie to you. But if you ask them, how happy are you? Yeah. They don't really have an objective standard for evaluating that. Right. And so even if they're really trying to be honest, your results are still going to be right. very skewed. But it's, you know, it's an interesting question. Yeah. I have a very strong economic growth is good impulse. Um, you, you know what I think matters? What? You know what I think really matters here, actually? I think people can only feel slope. Yeah. Like I, mean, I think, the, I think for, for happiness and economic growth, it's will things be better in the future? Yeah. Like I think that's essentially all that matters. There is some like I think there is real gains. Like you know we're sitting in this nice yeah air conditioned house yeah and that's awesome yeah that feels a lot better than being in the heat yeah but then again you know if you're outside in the heat. For two weeks, you start to develop heat shock proteins. Maybe it doesn't bother you. Huh. I don't know. Definitely something there. Yeah. I don't. I have an intuition. I don't know. Maybe there are micro slopes. When I think about being someone who has never sat in a nice air-conditioned house. Yeah. And so I'm used to it. I imagine there being more distractions more little moments of irritation that don't really register so i'm not sad that i'm not in a nice air conditioned house but maybe we're having an interesting conversation like this and a bug flies in my eye and neither of us think that's a big deal because it's normal so this happens yeah yeah i think it all fades in the background yeah like or most of all yeah it's like i don't know This also reminds me, Samo Buria. You know Samo? No. Oh, really? Um, great founder theory. No. Oh man, you should check out Samo. He's on this like palladium kind of axis, like governance futurism. You should check out yeah. Samo. Has some interesting thoughts. Um, but he had a tweet a couple months ago, and it was, he thought that people in the past were smarter than people today. And I just had like this kind of strong intuition against this. Yes. Um, nutrition is much better today. Yeah. Uh, straight up. And Protein. Yep. And I remember Scott arguing this with the neo-reactionaries in 2014. Oh, yeah? And he definitely won that argument. Did, you think, did the neo-reactionaries think people were smarter in the past? Yeah, they had some suggestive test results, but it turned out to be pretty much all selection bias. Well, yeah. I mean, you only get the works of people who were yeah quite smart like that's ah. seems to be clearly yeah nutrition alone yeah the flynn effect i yep. mean like we know this within the short the past 50 years yes um i can see how this part would be a double-edged sword but i still think part of it is way sharper uh media i mean in an oral culture, all culture is oral. In a culture with the printing press, uh, you can write things down and keep them. In a culture where people can send you memes and video clips and stuff, it makes sense that it's still running on the same basis 
I'm sure people in the 1700s had their own versions of memes, but I would expect us to actually gain something from having the pictures and yeah. variants on the... It seems like that gives us access to more cultural knowledge. And some yeah. of that cultural knowledge is bad, but I would expect the general trend to be positive. Definitely. Yeah, I think you're right. One last thought. Do you think there's been moral progress in any real sense? You know, we talked about whether people are smarter. It's getting back to our moral moral circle thought. Do you think... And what would even moral progress look like? That's actually a better, better question. I don't have an external standard by which to measure it. I'm the product of a society that produced me. And so I noticed that people's values are coming closer to my values, which you would expect just anthropically. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there's an attitudinal implication that um, a lot of the times when people say stuff like that, they, they're implicitly saying you should take your own values less seriously. And I think that's really separate from the metaphysical question of how you measure them. Right. I mean, because saying you should take your values less seriously is also a values-based statement, and there's no reason to privilege it. Yeah. So, I'm, I think I'm stressed now partly because I'm not sure about the last 20 years, but I see the advent of uh, the Enlightenment as being a big step forward and as getting us some stuff I think maybe getting us new social technology that lets us do stuff we weren't necessarily doing before Yeah, I still see that as positive um, but I don't think there's a lot of the universe that has to be positive right well, and, you know, we don't, um, we don't burn witches anymore. Yes. That's, that's why I was going for. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, like, a absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a, I mean, that's a big shift. You know, yeah. the, the scapegoat is innocent. Yeah. It's, uh, it's super important. Yep. And I don't, uh, we've been going for a while, so I don't want to. Have I talked to you about Gerard at all? Almost none. Almost none. He's come up a few times. He had a good essay in the Politics and Apocalypse book you loaned me that yeah. I need to get back. Gotcha. I liked that. I'll send you an episode I did with uh, Jeff Schoenberger and we'll have to oh. talk about it. Yeah. I would really like that. I won't do him Mimesis, justice. yeah. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, Quinn. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you it's for having me. Awesome. This is really neat. Let's do it again. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.